Well, hello and welcome to Truth Script Tuesday. I am your host, David Harris. I am not John Harris. John is taking some time off. Um, I am John's slightly, perhaps, allegedly, maybe a little bit more dashing younger brother. Uh, but in all seriousness, I'm the president of True Script, and it's a huge blessing to be able to come out in front of the camera and tell you about some of the things that uh, have been going on behind the scenes and uh, to highlight some of the articles that we've published over the last uh, two, two and a half weeks or so. Um, I uh, want to thank everybody who has prayed for this ministry, who's uh, donated um, there. We've had a, quite a few people who have donated a lot of time. And uh, if you're listening to this, I just want to say I really, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, God's really used used you to bless us. Um, if you've uh, donated financially, thank you as well. We really, really appreciate that. If you'd like to do so, you can go to the uh, the donate button on the TruthScript um, uh, website, truthscript.com. Uh, or you can go to contact us to find out about other ways of of uh, supporting us. And then, if you have ever said to yourself, "Self, I think maybe I think I fancy myself a writer. I believe I could, I could, perhaps I could recall the written word, whatever whatever it is uh, that uh, that your 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 inner monologue. Apparently, that's what mine sounds like. Uh, then I just want to call to your attention real quick. Um, you can go to the bottom of the True Script page. And uh, at the bottom, on the bottom right, it says publish. So we're going to go there. You go to publish. Maybe you've been here before, but before you even write something, or if you already have something, either way, uh, go to the TrueScript content style guide. And this gives you really specific information about what content we're looking to publish. So here's the categories that we're we're. Uh, looking to publish right now. And then once you've written something or uh, once you have something, you can even do this while you're writing it. Um, look at the formatting and grammar section, and that will give you the notes you need, the information you need to uh, make sure it, it uh, meets um, the sort of grammatical uh, standards that we're looking for as well. So uh, if you fancy yourself a, a writer, I encourage you to, to send something in. Um, all right, let us look at, we're going to look at our lead article first here. Why celebrate Reformation Day from uh, one of our directors, Pastor Danny Steinmeier. He's the pastor of Truth Bible Church in uh, Idaho, which is not too far outside of Boise. If you're in the area, stop by, say hello. And um, this is a, uh, I'm just going to warn you. Um, first of all, if you are if, if you're listening to this, happy Reformation Day, especially if you're listening on Reformation Day. Um, if you are Catholic or Eastern Eastern Orthodox, I'll say it again, happy Reformation Day. Um, this is an unapologetically Reformation Day article. So I'm going to read through the beginning of this and just sort of um, make some general points, but I'd encourage you to go over and read the whole thing. Let's take a look real quick here. On this day in history, happy Reformation Day. Today marks the 506th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation as identified with the day that Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle. Yet many Christians will give little to no thought today about the significance of this day in the history of the church. A once strong tradition of memorializing our Protestant heritage has been swallowed up by a thoroughly secular and pagan Halloween. No longer interested in creating or influencing the culture, much of the evangelical church in America has given itself over to trunk or treats, Harvest festivals and most of our families will simply join with the rest of the world in a memorial celebration of nothing. However, many of those same Christians will lament the state of our nation's culture, which has been captured by the enemies of Christ as they have 
as they made a long, slow march through all of our institutions. Having lost a fighting reformational spirit, too many pastors and churches have traded in their saltiness for fun size milk chocolate and have hidden their lights under a superhero costume. Most of us recognize that we need a new great awakening, revival and reformation, but we lack the self-awareness to recognize that we are the ones standing in the way of it. So uh, Pastor Danny here is unapologetically pro Reformation Day. Wherever you fall in that category, whether you are a Halloween fan or a Reformation Day fan or wherever you happen to be, um, Pastor Simer makes some uh, some very compelling arguments, especially in this next uh, section that I want to just gloss over real quick about the need for Christians to have more memorializing. Let's take a look really quick at this paragraph. Check this out. Caring about the calendar. One of the primary elements of a nation is its culture marked by important memorial holidays, holidays, and celebrations. Of course, that is where a people have a sense of something that is important to them, their heritage, a monumental moment that they want to set apart as special on the calendar so that they remember the past and celebrate the blessings from it. As God was preparing, so in the next paragraph, he kind of goes into the um, uh, the different Old Testament examples of memorializing um, when God told the Israelites, Set up these stones, um, celebrate, celebrate Passover, remember the, the great, the mighty, great and mighty deeds that, um, that God did for his people. And Pastor Steinmeier makes the argument that really, if we want, if we're expecting reformation and revival, if, if that's what really we really want, then something else that we're going to need to do is we're going to need to be different and we're going to need to follow our, follow our calendar. And that's something that the, especially the American evangelical church has not really done a lot of. Um, we tend to take our cues from the world. And so he lays out, um, uh, makes a case for doing that in the area of Reformation Day. I'll just say, I grew up in a uh, house that did celebrate Reformation Day. Um, we, we, we did some Halloween things too, but usually Halloween was like, um, we would uh, we do reverse trick or treat, or we would uh, we'd go to somebody's house. We'd hand out tracks with candy, but we still we would dress up. We would do different things. We were kind of involved. But um, my parents uh, sort of instituted a Reformation Day uh, kind of um, festivity in in our house, and I always look forward to it. I really loved it. Um, part of it was probably because I was a history buff. But uh, you can make this very fun, and if it sounds cheesy, you know what. Okay, that's fine. But um, I, I can tell you from personal experience that um, my mom kind of would create sort of a medieval like theme. And, you know, we were homeschooled. So it's the kind of thing homeschoolers are doing anyways. Um, and uh, we would, you know, eat, eat uh, like a medieval type meal with roast uh, goose. No, we weren't eating goose. We were, uh, you know, roast chicken and, and like root vegetables and things like that. And, uh, and then we, we would watch the film Luther. We did that a couple of times. Um, or there's some other films on John Huss and, and different reformers and, uh, talk about, um, what, what they represented, what their lives meant. And especially I remember the, uh, the John Huss, um, uh, film, it's kind of an older film. I think it was made in the seventies. You can find it on YouTube, I believe. Um, really shook me when I was younger. Just imagining, you know, there's a scene where he sticks his hand into the fire and imagines that this is going to, this fire is going to engulf him, um, you know, within, I think it's like 24 hours. Uh, and just, you know, the, the sacrifice that some of these guys made um, to stand true to the, most of the time, the doctrine of um, grace alone through faith alone. Uh, so, 
Definitely worth considering. Take a look at Pastor Steinmeier's article. The next article we have is from Pastor Chase Davis. He is a pastor in Boulder, Colorado, which is one of the most beautiful cities in the country. It is such a beautiful place. I mean, it's right up against the Rocky Mountains. You got the flat irons there. I could talk a long time about the city itself. Very, very left-leaning place. Uh, It's a college town. Um, uh, But uh, Pastor Pastor Davis is there. And... uh, Pray for somebody who's ministering in Boulder, Colorado. That is that is a, a beautiful place, but definitely a, a very, very secular place as well. So what does Pastor Davis have to tell us? Uh, his article is called Public Witness Post-Woke. And this gets into some of the terminology around um, the, the woke church movement. He says in the beginning here, at this point in time, it's hard to imagine a Christian leader intentionally forcing wokeness as in woke church. However, it's not for the reasons you think. Apparently, the word woke was a completely redeemable word as of four years ago. We could use it like Stretch Armstrong, pulling it this way and that. It fell within the boundaries of linguistic colonization, or should I say contextualization, to take the philosopher's concepts and repurpose them within the church, like Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17. We're supposed to plunder the Egyptians, taking worldly concepts and submitting them to Christ. Why? Because it showed that we heard, cared, and wanted to answer the concerns of the world. We wanted to meet the needs of the world. Therefore, we were to wokeify the church. This was very much in vogue in 2018. And he goes on to talk about how um, the term woke hit its its expiration date. So it, the, the term fell out of favor after there had already been books published that used that term to describe like woke church. Um, and um, and th- then it was sort of it was sort of, you couldn't touch it. You didn't want to use it anymore. Um, another, he goes in a little farther down, no longer a useful analytical tool. Another example of this is CRT that was used as something that was, uh, this is something that we can repurpose in the church. We can use this terminology. It's a useful analytical tool. Um, but then there was a political backlash against this term. And so uh, now also that term has sort of been uh, run away from. So the sort of the crux of this article, and uh, I would encourage you to go read it for yourself. Um, but he talks about, uh, public witness. So there's a lot of focus on, but we need to be a good public witness. The world is watching the The world is, is, uh, is taking its, uh, making all its decisions about Christianity based on what it's seeing, uh, from us. And he says here towards the end for, for the American pastor, respectability has long been tied to pragmatism. If you can get things done and draw a crowd, you will be respected. And in the absence of a healthy honor, shame society, which actually seems to be awakening from its dormancy, respectability is the next best thing. Addicts to public respect, they must make their home in the world so they can have a credible, credible public witness. For the early church, public witness would often mean your time on earth had come to an end. So he goes into sort of what this would mean in, in a different context when public witness would get you killed. And obviously in a lot of places throughout the world, it will get you killed at this point. Uh, I would encourage you to read the whole article. The end is really, really good. Um, uh, it's up there, was posted October 14th. So that's two weeks ago, but it's still definitely worth worth your time. All right, let's take a look at uh, this article from Jamie Bambrick. Now, the funny thing about this article is I was actually in the process of writing it. Not this particular article. Uh, mine was going to be called A Compassionate Argument for a Secure Border. Jamie did the work for me. He made a video. You can go to YouTube and type in Jamie Bambrick and uh, uh, look at some of his 
his material. He, he's been making some, some really good stuff, uh, really well-made videos, well-produced videos. Uh, and so he turned this one into a, um, an article for us. And uh, I say this as somebody who has worked and is very, um, very intimately connected and familiar with, uh, with migrant populations. But I work with, I work with migrants. I work with people who, in some cases, just crossed over the border, theoretically, days ago, um, in some instances. So I'm, I'm very, very familiar with uh, a lot of the, the issues surrounding uh, mass immigration. I'm on the front lines. And I would argue that, um, and, and Jamie would too, Jamie does a really good job of laying this out, that this is going to be a significant uh, issue. There are going to be a lot of questions on how to deal with uh, the cultural chaos and clash that arises because of the open border policy. What Jamie demonstrates, and um, again, I'm going to, I'm going to let you read it. You really, it's worth your time. I would definitely go over and read this one. Um, you know, I'll read, I'll read the beginning. I'll read the first couple of paragraphs. Um, Allow me to do, let me to begin by doing something I rarely do. Give my intersectional credentials. I have been both an immigrant. I lived in Sweden for five years and my favorite person in the world, my wife is from Bulgaria. So when I say that mass immigration is not something the Bible is supportive of, it's obviously not because I'm a hardline blood and soil nativist. Picture the scene, you and your family are asleep and in the middle of the night. So he goes, I'm going to just going to, I'm going to summarize. He talks about um, families asleep. Somebody comes to the door and says, uh, there's, you know, there's a riot in my, in, in my town and I need protection. So you take them and you protect them. But then you notice over time that like other people are showing up. And so you take them in too. And some of the people that are showing up well, seem like they may have been the ones who instigated the riot. And at some point, you know, this sort of, he takes this, this illustration farther and sort of says at some point, um, at some point you're not doing the right thing by continuing to allow anybody to enter your house. You're actually doing quite the opposite, not because you don't care about people outside of your house, but because you're demonstrating that you don't care about the people in your house. And they're the people that uh, God has given you first responsibility over. This is an issue that is just has gotten totally flipped um, in a lot of evangelical, especially evangelical circles. And I've encountered this. I work with this population. I, my day job is I work with migrants, sometimes migrants who have only been here for days. They've just walked over the border a few days ago. And um, there is a definitely a difficulty in um, theologically and um, coming, coming, understanding the theological underpinnings for why a nation needs to be secure. Your nation needs to be secure. And it's not, it's as fundamental as Romans 13, um, the Romans 13 charge to government. The first responsibility is for a government to protect its people. And um, Jamie's illustration is the same is true for a family. You, your, your, uh, your responsibility primarily is to love and care for your family. So if you just throw your door open, you know, um, you, you, I think I think the saying I don't I think he actually says this in an article, but this, the saying is true, right? You don't have a you don't have a door because you hate people outside your house. You have a door because you love the people in your house. So um, he goes into a, a number of. Um, uh, particular arguments of why this is the case biblically. Probably the the maybe the most um, important one is order amoris. So there's an order to your loves. This is this is biblical. Um, you don't 
if you, you don't love every person the same, just like, um, and I think he mentions this, you don't, you don't love every, if you're a man, you don't love every woman in the same way. You love your wife, right? And that is, that that's, she's the one that God has given to you. So um, uh, there are um, a number of really good sort of reasoned um, arguments in this, um, this piece that are definitely worth your time. And if you're not sure about this issue, I would start here, read this article um, and you'll be very well informed on why um, the, the, the open border thing is not a biblical concept at all. It is quite the opposite. So I definitely encourage you to read that one. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and uh, look at this piece from Matt Borish. actually had the privilege of meeting Matt a couple weeks ago at the Truth Script uh, retreat, men's retreat up in the Adirondacks. Really nice guy. Um, the Ninth Commandment, for those of you who did not go to Iwana, is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So he says, almost all Christians, many from their youth, are familiar with the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We know it forbids not only lying about others, but more broadly, any distortion of the truth, as this would contradict the very nature of God, who is the source of truth. Positively, this commandment also exhorts us to promote truth in all our dealings with mankind. As conservative Bible-believing Christians, we want the truth of God to be zealously promoted and error be vanquished. This is a noble cause, and all of us, especially elders, are commanded to do so. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Titus 1.9. However, in our zeal to promote what we believe is God's truth, are we at the same time violating the ninth commandment by distorting and warping it? All of us agree that blatantly telling lies and slandering another person are wrong and are and we are justifiably angry when it's done to us. Most Christians try to avoid this, but where we fall is being careless and lazy with our public claims about others. Enter the concept of broad brushing. Cambridge Dictionary defines painting with a broad brush as describing or considering something or someone in a very general way without paying attention to small detail, details or differences. This has been very common lately among Christians, especially in the social media online world. To illustrate this, take the following phrases that have been said in various forms over the past year. Covering up sexual abuse is widespread in evangelical churches. Charismatics all promote word of faith theology. Christian nationalists are about promoting kinism and white supremacist ideology. All public schools are out to indoctrinate and groom your children and promote leftist and transgender ideology. Dispensationalists think Jesus will return next week. Taking these statements at face value, are all these statements perpetually true in all circumstances? Many churches had congregations. So he goes into some of the, the examples of... Um, you know, these, these, none of these statements are always true. Obviously, there's exceptions. And he, he, you know, he says, yes, of course, there is truth to these, uh, to all of these statements, perhaps in some way or another. Um, but uh, the danger is in broad brushing. There can be a danger of, um, of lying sometimes about your, your brothers. If you are online, if you are on Twitter, I'm just going to say it. You probably see this every single day. Um, there is a tendency. Um, I've noticed. I've noticed it with myself. It's one of the reasons why I, I've tried to be a little careful and even back off sometimes and sometimes just take breaks from the whole thing. Uh, because there's a tendency of somebody has a hot take or a lukewarm take or even a cold take. And there is dogpiling that comes from people in quote unquote, different camps. You kind of realize over time, there aren't really camps. There's just people on Twitter and some of them belong 
to this group sort of maybe, but they don't agree with this. And people, people have all sorts of varying views on a, on a whole bunch of things, even within the body of Christ. And um, th there can be a tendency, especially online to sort of, you know, mentally draw the, the battle lines in your mind. Well, that one's on that side and that one's on that side. Um, but with painting with a broad brush, a lot of the time this just isn't the case. So uh, it's Matt's article is a really good um, uh, reminder and warning. It actually almost felt like a, a little little slap on the face, even to me, because I was like, yeah, I, I kind of I kind of get in the, um, the the vein of thinking this way sometimes too. It's a good challenge uh, to uh, to not do that, to not paint with a broad brush, to really think of uh, think of brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters first. And, um, uh, I, I just, I couldn't help but thinking of my mom telling me when I was like 10 years old, uh, she'd say, don't use blanket statements. Don't use blanket statements because we would say, you know, I'd say about my brother, um, um you know, especially John, I would say like, you always do this or you never do that. And she would say, that's a blanket statement. We don't use blanket statements. Um, so Matt's telling you don't use blanket statements. Um, so definitely check out uh, the rest of Matt's article, um, there. And he has some good practical um, suggestions. Actually, let me just go over those real quick. Check this, if you want to check this out. So he says, um, uh, here's some ways. Here's some ways of making sure you don't do that. Number one, get all the details rather than rely on sound bites or super superficial assumptions. And goodness gracious, do we not live in the time of the sound bite? I was thinking the Republican debates, the ones that the entire thing is set up so that they have like five to 10 second sound bites that, that our whole entire political system is predicated on this. So that that's where we are culturally. And it shows up in the church too, because sometimes we reflect the culture too much, get all the details rather than rely on sound bites or superficial assumptions. Number two, communicate with people, do it directly, have real conversations with real people. Uh, number three, use qualifying statements when making public claims. And this is, I mean, um, there, I think, I mean, I think there's a time to throw out the qualifying statements Matt is saying specifically in, in talking with, uh, you know, this is within the body. So, you know, you don't need to qualify everything you're saying to the world. But when you're dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ, um, then those those statements can be very helpful. You know, I'm not saying that <laughs> I'm not saying that you're the devil, you know, might might be uh, might be helpful. OK, so definitely check out that the rest of that uh, that article from Matt. All right, let's take a look at our resident Canadian, Lucas Champ, coming uh, writing to us from British Columbia. And he writes uh, an article called World Conflict, Christ's Kingship. He says, the world, in, the world we live in is filled with nations and near constant conflict to establish their own rule, reign, and empire over the hearts and minds of mankind. The reality of kingdoms raging against each other for the benefit and advancement of their own glory has been the rule for millennia. Words would fail us if we were to intricately examine the powers of the world that existed and vied for total domination. The tell of the Egyptian dynasty, the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, under Nebuchadnezzar, the power of Rome, Greece, France, China, England, and their dynasties, to describe the might of, the, of Germany, Russia, Japan, and the crushing force of the United States of America. For the whole of human history, nation has raged, raged against nation. And uh, he mentions that Israel and Palestine, this is where we're seeing this play out right now. Um, uh, but this is, this is the normal, this is the normal status of nations. And, um, you know, I would just add, uh, there are many nations throughout the world that are in conflict right now. It's not just Israel and Palestine, it's Azerbaijan and Armenia are in, are in open conflict. 
there's been issues between Myanmar and Bangladesh. Um, obviously, there, I mean, there's sort of a permanent uh, tension between India and Pakistan. Then you have international, like, um, not international, but inter, like, in the nation conflicts. Nigeria, Somalia, um, the Democratic, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, there are, this, this is the norm. Um, there's a tendency, I think, especially in the West, to sort of just want to deny this, that we've, that, no, peace is the norm. Democracy is the, it's not, it's not. The, the norm is conflict. That is the way of the world. It has always been that way. Um, and it will be until, uh, until Christ's kingdom is, and things are fully restored here. So, um, uh, he goes on here grounded in scripture. So, um, he goes to, he looks to Psalm two, uh, Psalm two. And, and he says here, believe it or not, you don't need an extensive background in middle Eastern history to understand the most important part, parts of the uh, points of the current conflict. So that would be the one between Israel and Palestine. In fact, all you need is a Bible turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 begins with the principal question regarding the nations and their conflict. Why do the nations rage? This is the pattern of world history. Nations are constantly raging. And this is clearly seen in the steady stream of vitriol and hatred exchanged by Palestine and Israel in recent weeks. Um, he says nations that are not governed according to the laws of God and for the glory of Christ are continually devising and scheming their own advancement. So if you're, if you're a nation and you're not dedicated to the true and living God, of course, you're going to be dedicated to your own advancement or the advancement of the God that you are serving. Um, and so um, there's no, <laughs> he, the, uh, the two examples that would be cl closest to, to us here in the United States, Canada and the U.S., two nations founded on biblical principles, are doing all they can to eradicate any recognition of God from public and even private life. This parallels biblical history as Israel constantly departed from the loving restriction of God's law in order to pursue their wickedness. So he goes on to sort of draw this um, parallel. What is God's response? In response to the rebellion of the nations, the Lord sits unbothered in the heavens and scoffs at them. Verse 4 of Psalm 2. He's the one who turns the hearts of kings, and so before them their desperate machinations are nothing but a fool's errand. Um, he a little farther down he says, as we continue in Psalm two, we come to verses seven through nine, wherein the Lord reveals to the nations the reality of Christ's kingship. The Lord has begotten a son who has come to earth and earned the praise of the nations for his faithful obedience. He did what the first Adam failed to do and burst from the bonds of death in a display of magnificent victory. The nation, says the father, are his possession and uh, all the nations upon which he will tread and break with a rod of iron. So um, uh, he, he sort of wraps up uh, Psalm 2. Um, so how should we view the conflict between Israel and Palestine in light of Psalm 2? First, we can recognize that neither nation currently recognizes Christ as Lord. While they may be in intense conflict with each other, they have a greater enemy. Christ. Until there's repentance, the nations risk not only physical death and mayhem, but the eternal separation of their citizens from the only king who has the power not only to spare their nations, but also to save souls. The only hope for any nation and, and the people who dwell therein is to turn to the sun. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is, um, this is going to be true for most of the nations in the world, because there are very few nations that openly acknowledge uh, Christ as Lord. There are some, they are mostly in Polynesia and Sub-Saharan Africa, but there are, there are a number that officially do technically, um, acknowledge Christ as Lord. Doesn't mean that the government necessarily operates in that way, but, um, 
it is in their documentation. Uh, so I'd encourage you to take a look at uh, Lucas Champ's article uh, over there as well. Well, this is going to about do, uh, do it for me um, for this True Script Tuesday. Again, if you would like to submit, you can go to publish on the True Script website. And um, we, uh, I just appreciate you taking the time to uh, check out what uh, the Lord is doing through this ministry. And again, we covet your prayers. And um, yeah, thanks for stopping by.